Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode 27 of the CCRN Review. For those of you that are new, welcome. My name is Kay Hoppy. And I have been in the critical care environment for just about 40 years. And uh, currently in the last year, I have taken on um, a position full-time at a local university. And so I bring to you a wealth of knowledge and experience from just about 40 years of practice in critical care. For those of you that are coming back for another podcast Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode. In this episode, we are going to be talking about hematomas. Now, if you remember in the last episode, we talked about skull fractures. So it makes perfect sense to move on in this podcast episode to looking at hematomas. Now, a couple of announcements before we get started. I have just recently, this past Monday, I have recently released my PCCN review program for pre-sale. Now, this program is 30 continuing education hours. And unlike a lot of the programs that are out there, this program, like all of my online programs, are lifetime access. So well past the time, uh, after you pass your national accreditation, you can use the information in the online programs in order to review concepts or for, you know, in whatever way it can meet your needs. So again, the PCCN 30 continuing education hour review just came out last Monday and that's for pre-sale at $249. So uh, 30 CEs for $249 is quite a great bargain. And um, there also is a mock PCCRN test at the very end. So you can test yourself to see if you are ready to take the PCCN. I also have my CCRN online program available now. And both of these programs, you can just head over to my website, khoppypresents.com. The link is in this podcast description to make things easy. So um, one other thing, and that is I do have my CCRN mock exam as a uh, individual purchase. If you would like to take the test only just to assess where you are in terms of your needs for studying, perhaps or maybe you're all done studying and you want to take the exam 
And so you want to, you know, take a dry run before you sit for the CCRN. I do have the mock exam available uh, for sale. Again, head over to my website, khoppypresents.com, and you can access um, the sales page. And it is for $25 for a 150 question mock exam. So that is what I have. I am still on Facebook at K Happy Presents, um, providing questions that are either PCCN, CCRN, or both um, focused for you on Facebook. I also make announcements on my Facebook page. So again, that's at K Happy Presents. And I do encourage you to subscribe. When you head over to my website, please do subscribe because you get access to all of the upcoming events. I am going to be starting webinars in fall. So you will get access to all of that information. Again, head over to my website and on my, or as part of my email list, you also will be receiving kind of the CCRN or PCCN question of the day. Not every day of the week, sometimes it's every few days, but I also the following day give the answer with rationale, make announcements, and so on. So without further ado then, let's get into talking about hematomas. In order to get, totally understand um, anatomically where a hematoma resides, we have to take just a moment and talk about the anatomy. So if you look at the outside of the head, the skull, of course you have, you know, the scalp, the scalp, the hair that covers the cranium, right? It covers the bone, the bony covering, all of them being technically protective coverings of the brain. Where I want to go now is one step in from the skull. And that is, I want to talk about the meningeal layers. The meningeal layers are the protective coverings of the brain. On the outside, you have the dura mater. Dura mater literally stands for tough mother. So you know what? I get, I'm guessing that if you have three meningeal layers, you're going to put the tough mother on the outside. And that's just what we have, the dura mater. Now, the dura mater has some very important functions. Not only is it the toughest um, or the, the uh, thickest, let's say, meningeal layer and it's on the outside it's right inside of the skull but the an inward folding of the dura mater actually provides us with a very important anatomic structure that we always address in ct scanning maybe not we like you and i because it's obviously the radiologist that does that but an inward folding of the dura mater gives us what's called the falx cerebri. Now you might be saying to yourself, okay, falx cerebri, who cares? Why do I need to know that? Why do I need to know that term? Well, the falx cerebri, which again is just an inward folding of the dura mater, the falx cerebri is always assessed for midline position. So you got to admit, if you, you know, can't read the CT scan, you know, when you get the phone call that it's a bad sign when you have a midline shift. Well, when the radiologist tells you that you have a midline shift, what he or she is referring to is the falx cerebri. 
and the folk cerebri, of course, can swing like a pendulum to one side or another because it's just made up of tissue, right? It's made up of dura mater. And so pressure, that pressure might be a bleed, it might be a mass, it might be increased fluid like in hydrocephalus, can cause a midline shift of the dura mater, um, that inward folding of the dura mater known as the Falks cerebri. Now, we've talked about the skull. The next layer is the dura mater. Now, below, actually, let me just back up a second and not even go below the dura mater. Let's still talk about that, um, that area between the skull and the dura. The important thing to know about that area between the skull and the dura mater is that's where you have the middle meningeal artery, the middle meningeal artery. Now, let's just say you have this patient that gets a whack upside the head with a baseball bat. And let's say very commonly the temporal area is an area that um, suffers trauma. And so now we have laceration of the middle meningeal artery. And we said that middle meningeal artery, what we see is located epidurally and therefore can result in a epidural hematoma. And notice how I'm using the term artery, like middle meningeal artery. So now we have an arterial bleed. So we know then that when a person has a whap upside the head or a uh, trauma to the temporal area and we wind up with an epidural hematoma, we know that that patient needs surgical evacuation. Okay, so that is the answer there. The patient has to have surgical evacuation of this arterial bleed or the patient is going to herniate and die. Very commonly, patients with epidural hematomas get the whack upside the head. They may see stars or initially might lose consciousness, but then they very rapidly lose consciousness, deteriorate. And so when you are taking your exam, look for the story problem where the person has this whap upside the head. My guy flew off a, a motorcycle and hit his head on a tree but they have the trauma to the head initially might be talking to bystanders or EMS when EMS arrives, but then very rapidly uh, declines. The other thing that is a dead ringer for epidural hematoma is the fact that the patient goes on to develop ipsilateral blown pupil and contralateral Babinski. So look for those things in a story problem that you might get on your exam. So again, to summarize, the whap upside the head, or so the head trauma, right? Might initially lose consciousness, but rapidly regain consciousness, and then rapidly and progressively decline. Some patients don't initially even lose consciousness they see stars, they feel, you know, like they've had this concussion kind of event and then very rapidly decline. They need surgical intervention and they need evacuation of that hematoma. So let's move on in. We've talked about the skull. We've talked about the dura. We've talked about the epidural location 
And we said the significance of that location is that's where you find the middle meningeal artery that will result in a epidural hematoma, which needs surgical um, evacuation. So let's move inward. Subdurally, okay, subdurally, we have a lot of veins. And the next meningeal layer that we see underneath the dura mater is what's called the arachnoid mater. And the arachnoid mater is named arachnoid, like spider, because it has a web-like appearance. Now, one of the things to keep in mind, as I just mentioned a moment ago, we said in between the dura and the arachnoid, we have a lot of veins. So when somebody has a subdural bleed, a subdural bleed is typically a venous bleed. It occurs between the dura mater and the arachnoid mater. And so for patients with a subdural bleed, a venous bleed, whether we perform surgical intervention or not is going to totally depend upon the degree of neurologic compromise of the patient. You know, sometimes you can get elderly people that, that go on because of cerebral atrophy. They can go on to develop a subdural hematoma that is spontaneous because of atrophy, atrophy of <clears throat> the cerebral cortex and the pulling or tugging on small little bridging vessels. And a lot of times, you know, those very small subdural bleeds, we can just observe the patient very closely and surgical intervention is not warranted. However, we can have patients that have a big subdural and now we need to go in there because the patient is severely neurologically compromised and we need to evacuate. So between the dura and the arachnoid, we have a lot of veins and we talked about subdural hematoma. Below the um, arachnoid, between the arachnoid and the pia mater, and the pia mater is the protective covering of the brain. It's a, it attaches to the gyrus and sulcus of the brain. So in the sub, uh, subarachnoid area, that's where we have a lot of arteries again. And so, you know what, guys, the most common cause of a subarachnoid hemorrhage is either a severe head trauma or you have rupture of a cerebral aneurysm or an arterial venous malformation. So aneurysms and AVMs are really common in that subarachnoid area. And then we wind up having a patient that has a subarachnoid arterial bleed. And when we take patients like that to surgery, then we wind up, you know, clipping the aneurysm or whatever in order to stop the bleed. But then we have a lot to deal with in terms of first and foremost, cerebral vasospasm. And that's a big one because patients can go on to develop stroke-like symptoms because of cerebral vasospasm post uh, aneurysm clipping or repair of an arterial venous malformation leak. So that's a huge one. And then after that, we could have a re-bleed. So those are some very important things to keep in mind. Now below the arachnoid, then 
we said a lot of arteries. And then the next meningeal covering is the pia. Pia means fragile. Literally, it means fragile. And it covers the hills and valleys of the brain. So we don't say then that somebody has a subpeal bleed. We say that if somebody bleeds beneath the pia mater, they are bleeding directly into uh, the brain tissue itself. And so then we have an intracerebral hemorrhage. Obviously, for all of these, we are going to be monitoring for increase in intracranial pressure and treating the, the patient for that pressure, for that brain swelling as well. So when we talk about, for example, our collaborative management, watching that neuroassessment very closely, maintaining you know, good blood pressure control, that's important. We use drugs like labetalol and nicardipine in order to maintain blood pressure control. And we also use drugs like um, nimodipine, so that's a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker to prevent cerebrovascular spasm, which indeed is a problem in patients' subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, monitor EKG changes. There may be exaggerated sympathetic activity and dysrhythmias as a result of it. Post-head injury, seizure prophylaxis um, may be warranted. Keep the patient euvolemic. We talked about um, vigilant, very vigilant uh, neuroassessment, especially you know when neural changes. Uh, or when neurostatus changes, thinking about cerebral vasospasm, and then um, treating neurogenic fever. Oftentimes, when we talk about neurogenic fever, that's a person that we identify as being neurogenic in terms of their fever because it doesn't respond to acetaminophen. In my course, I go into much more depth in managing patients with hematomas. So this podcast is an overview for you. If you would like to take a look at the information that's included in my CCRN or PCCN exams, please head on over to my website, which again is khoppypresents.com. I thank you for sharing this time with me. And I look forward to talking to you soon in the next podcast episode. Have a blessed day, everybody. Bye-bye.